Did you know that in 2021, 25% of Canadians and 57% of Americans reported having more mental stress than last year? Stress affects focus, decision-making, follow-through, and ability to see the forest for the trees. Let's bring some calm and order into our lives, shall we? Productivity Toolkit 2022 to the rescue. Our toolkit can bring you a breath of fresh air for better focus, help you organize, and get systematic. You get 12 actionable templates to use immediately, and you're invited to quarterly workshops about how to apply each tool now. With the 2022 Productivity Toolkit, you get 24-7 access to all the templates and tips on how to use them. This year, I divided the toolkit into four key themes focused on systems, power of one, power of two, power of team, and the power of scale. I know you will love them. Here's what one customer had to say about last year's toolkit. I thoroughly enjoy your productivity tutorial sessions. They help me bring a lot of improvement to my daily routine. I use some of these tips and the templates with my staff, and we are all the better for it. So get in on the VIP advanced launch by heading over to shiftworkplace.co slash productivity tools. That's shiftworkplace.co slash productivity tools. Hello, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. I am so excited to present to you uh, my podcast guest today, and his name is Raju Rajan. He's the founder and president of Rewild Long Island, and he's also the global account chief technologist with Hewlett Packard Enterprise. So he comes with multiple qualifications and a lot of passion, and I can hardly wait to introduce him to you. So welcome to the program, Rajan. Thank you, Maureen. Really appreciate it. So here's the formal bio, and then afterwards, I'll ask you to say a few words about yourself from your own perspective. Raju Rajan is a technologist with a strong communitarian ethic. Raju has a PhD in communication networks from the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a background in networking research, and is the author of over 30 peer-reviewed publications, 14 patents, and numerous industry presentations. His strong entrepreneurial ethic has led him to found two IT startups, as well as a number of community groups aimed at organizing people for systemic change. He is currently active with Long Island Together, a progressive collective that organizes around education, immigration, and social change, and is a founder and president of Rewild Long Island, which brings native plants to public spaces and private yards. Raju resides in Port Washington, New York, with his wife, Sonia Aurora, who is an educator, community organizer, and his son, Kabira Singh, a sophomore in college, and his cat, Lucky, who does nothing but command the attention of all politely. I understand. Is that right? Yeah, she's extraordinarily polite. She'll always greet you. Anybody coming into a room gets a meow and a look. This is all good. Being acknowledged by a cat is up there in my being acknowledged list. So welcome to the Cultural Leadership Connections podcast. Please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself from your own perspective. So I was born in South India, personally lived in Chennai in the state of Tamil Nadu. My mother tongue is Tamil, which is the language spoken in that state. My parents still live in a town called Kovai in South India. It's beautiful, temperate town. Uh, one of the projects I'm doing is actually creating a native agroforest-based farm there. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful country. And I grew up with a sister, two brothers. We are all close, stay in touch, even though we are spread all across the world. 
My mother growing up was one of the most articulate and intelligent people, huge influence in my life on everything I do as well as everything I have rebelled against. So I came to the United States when I was about 22 for graduate studies at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. I graduated with a degree, a PhD in communications networks. I have worked in research. I initially started out with large companies, IBM and AT&T. I founded two startups, then came back, worked for Cisco, and now I work for Hewlett-Packard Enterprises. I met my wife, Sonia, while we were organizing together within the South Asian community to create a progressive South Asian organization in the mid-1990s when things like that were not around. <laughs> and uh, we've been happily ma- married and agitating and uh, working for political change, while at the same time, we live in Long Island, as you said, <laughs> with my son, who is now in college. Mm, that's great. That's really good. I'm going to ask you some questions about your activism in a minute, but I think I'd like to start with your childhood. So can you share a couple of incidents from your childhood that you believe made you into the person you are today? Sure. There are so many different things, but let me focus on the thread around rewilding and a lot of things that I do with the environment. One very little incident that always sticks in my head, and I can't see an ant wandering around my kitchen counter without thinking about my grandfather. I remember when I was like maybe about, must have been seven years old, and I had a four-year-old younger brother, and we were sitting together and killing ants on the kitchen floor. (laughs) And he was, I think, recovering from a heart attack. So he was actually immobile, but seated on a couch uh, at the edge of the kitchen. And he was like pleading with us, please don't kill the ants. He was personally, you know, it was not something where he just felt it was a wrong thing to do. It was where he felt hurt that we were killing the ants, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's kind of like, I always think about that sense of empathy. And I think that definitely was a big part of my culture and household, right? We grew up in a vegetarian household. And there was always this respect for life in my childhood. And that dovetailed with, you know, another incident would be, which is kind of interesting because it brings me back a full circle. We used to go on these long trips. I had an uncle who was extraordinarily adventurous and would take us into trips into the hills. And it is beautiful, gorgeous, very diverse country with trees and animals and elephants and peacocks. And I mean, you could see many of those things. And even now you can, um, but you have to go further because of urbanization. But one of the things I remember is whenever you drove through, especially around monsoon time, you couldn't drive more than a couple of hours before without having to stop and wipe the windshield because there would be insects splattered all across the windshield. This last December, I was in India and I drove from Chennai to Kovai, which is a you know six-hour drive, and the windshield was clean. There are some people who may say, so what? That's good. I'm just like, that just speaks to the annihilation of the insect population, not just in this country. Globally, what we have done to the environment is just horrifying. When we just think about little things like this, that just within a lifetime, we've gone from a windshield full of bugs to a completely clean windshield. That's horrifying to me. It really is. You know, now that you mention it, I was thinking the same thing when I took a drive that was about two hours long recently. And I was thinking, what happened to the insects that used to completely cover my shield? Where are they? What happened to them? It also reminds me of a quote by uh, Abdul Baha, who said, unless you must bruise not the serpent in the dust, no ant should you alarm, much less Mm -hmm. a brother harm. 
So like we are related to every blade of grass and we are part of the land and the flora and the fauna and all of this is part of who we are. And when we abuse it, we abuse everything and everyone. So what your stories were really making me think of those two things. If children grow up with someone saying it's so wrong to kill ants, then they're not going to do that when they get older. They'll shudder thinking that they would be affecting not only themselves, but those people in their lives who mattered to them, who would have been hurt by that act. Just hearing you say that, it's really evoking a lot of um, interesting ideas. Um, From the groups that you were born into, the Tamils, interesting culture and interesting heritage and have suffered a lot in the world as well. Maybe um, you have something to say about that, but maybe other things, you know, maybe it could be race, religion, it could be ethnicity or multiple ethnicities, could be social class, could be region. You mentioned going into the hills and seeing elephants and peacocks. All of those things could have really influenced who you are and your sense of culture and your sense of yourself as a leader, which stand out for you. You know, when I think about culture and reflect on who I was or what I grew up with that influenced what I'm doing now, I think for all of us, there are two kinds of influences, things that are good, that we imbibe and continue and make us who we are, and also things that we rebel against because we see the palpable injustice or inequity. And that's just so much an influence of the culture is also your rebellion is an influence of the culture, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because no culture progresses without rebels. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. when I reflect back on it, I am struck by the extraordinary privilege. I know that sometimes, especially uh, in the United States, when you say immigrant, there's like, you know, you're like this immigrant, this brown immigrant, right? It's like homogenous group or Asian or whatever. The categories and the labels don't really do justice to the rich diversity of differences and individual narratives that are out there. But on my side, right, I definitely think I've been extraordinarily privileged in both the good and the bad sense of the term, right? Both the implication of just the good fortune I've been blessed with and also the inequities that I have benefited from go into it. So I'm definitely privileged to be, say, the firstborn male son in a patriarchal society where there were a lot of women born for several years before I was born. So just that sense of having a male child, I think, was something, you know, it's that privilege. It's a privilege to be born in an anglicized urban middle-class family in India because you have access to good schools, you have access to healthcare. English is a key that opens the door to not just jobs, but it also opens the door to a whole culture. It opens the door to a whole set of privileges compared to people who don't have access to it. I was privileged to be born into the Brahmin caste. There is an enormous cultural advantage that comes from generations of people who have worked with words and learning and symbols, right? They've been astrologers or priests or uh, medicine men or accountants or educators or writers or sages or whatever. And when you inherit into that tradition, you naturally have more engineers and computer programmers and doctors and lawyers and technologists, right? And I call out that privilege not just to take pride in it and say, oh my God, I was at the top of the gas pyramid. But it is important to acknowledge it because you cannot inherit the positive things in your culture and say, oh yeah, I got the land from my parents and grandparents and I got the money from them and I got the cultural advantages from them and I got the learning from them. But guess what? All the wrong things they did, I don't want any part of it. That's on them. (laughs) That's extraordinarily not the right way to deal with it. And I think, you know, while many of us inherit privilege, I think it's important to acknowledge it and then 
then also say, okay, what did that privilege come at the cost of? And how do you inherit responsibility for millennia of patriarchy and oppression, especially against the Dalits, especially against women? And how do you go forward from there, not just wallow in guilt, but really how do you go forward from there? And what does it mean to be, you know, either penitent or have repentance or work through reparations or restitution? Like, where do we go as a society and as individuals from this learning from that? You have really thought about this, which is wonderful. You're presenting two sides, right? So one side is that I am grateful for and appreciate and can name the privileges that I received at birth. And that is really significant because many people with privilege refuse to name it. And that's why they never go to the other side of developing character as a result. Because if you don't name it, you can keep acting without any consequences. Mm -hmm. But you name it, And then you say, okay, now that also means that I have other things to consider. What does this mean? What are the implications? And in what ways does this influence other people? It's not just me, but how does this influence everything, including the whole development of the planet? Like you've really thought this through. It's very interesting to hear you speak about this. I'm I'm glad. And I I think the other part of it, which I think dovetails into the work I do, I think it's also a privilege to be born in India because I felt that I was at the confluence of so many religious enlightenment traditions. Mm -hmm. For sure you uh, were. Mm -hmm. Yes. I mean, people forget that there are indigenous people in India for tens of thousands of years. And many of their religious practices pervade in India. When people think about Hinduism, they think, oh, you know, they are idol worshippers. And I tell people, we are not just idol worshippers. We worship everything. We worship like trees. We worship sky. We worship ants and monkeys. And uh, <laughs> I mean, before you break ground on a building or plant a farm, you'll do like a worship for the earth and then apologize to all the creatures you're going to harm. You have an annual festival where you take all the tools of your trade, you know, it could be calculators and computers and put them in front of the gods and, you know, worship them. So it's like there's nothing we will not worship. It's (laughs) it's respectful. (laughs) It's reverent. I don't know if I would call it worship because worship is like putting something above you that may not deserve to be put above you. But for sure, it's reverence and appreciation. I have a friend from your area, from Chennai, and she told me that everything is also done with beauty. Like you do sand paintings and flower sculptures outside your porch, and then every week there's a new one. And you start the day in beauty, you continue the day in beauty, you end the day in beauty. Everything that you do is reverent and respectful and beautiful. And I was very touched when she told me that. Absolutely. And there are also atheists like myself. It's not like everybody is reverential. There are people who rebel against it and people who mock it and people who make fun of it, people who are indifferent to it. I mean, it's a whole confluence of things, right? So you have the indigenous traditions, you have the Vedic traditions that came, I don't know, a few thousand years ago that people usually know as the foundational books of Hinduism that established caste in India. There is the Buddhist enlightenment, right? That's one of the most famous enlightenments in history, which is an anti-caste movement, but it's all about knowing yourself in a way that is extraordinary. And then there is Mahavira and Jainism, which is a tradition that people in most of the world don't know, but it's an amazing tradition of non-violence and discipline. And if I were to think of a religion that would be appropriate for 3080, it would be Jainism. And then there is the Christianity. The Christian enlightenment came way before it came to Europe. It came into India. And it then went Muhammad to India first, the- in fact. 
straight to India. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, there have been Syrian Christians and Christian traditions in India way before there was the Roman Catholic Church. And then Muhammad and the uh, golden age of Islam with a sense of justice, a sense of equality, again, breaking caste, the Sikh enlightenment, and then the European enlightenment, right? But with the Europeans coming in, we are also inheritors to Locke and Hume and Newton and Shakespeare and Voltaire and Hegel and Marx. And (laughs) that started you know, the nationalist movement with Gandhi, combining those ideas together, giving us nonviolent civil resistance, and then freeing India. I mean, it's all, and then Ambedkar and and Periyar and so many anti-caste warriors who fed from these traditions and rebelled against Hinduism. So it's amazing how many Enlightenment traditions come together in India. And I feel really blessed by that because it's the work I do politically in terms of working with the environment on one hand is deeply influenced by the traditions of Hinduism and Buddhism and Jainism, which don't see that distinction between a human being who has soul and everybody else who doesn't have soul, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a tradition which believes in you could be most likely reborn as a worm or an ant or a, you know, it's very clear that the, there is no distinction in terms of, maybe there is a distinction in terms of cognitive ability or intelligence, but just in terms of soul and spirituality, there is no distinction between uh, human beings and the rest of creation. Mm-hmm. And that leads to sort of very many of those traditions becoming nonviolent, very many of those traditions during the harming or killing or eating of meat in various regards, right? I don't want to, uh, you know, there's also purity and pollution element to it, which I don't want to go into. But basically, right, just that respect for life is a different way of thinking about creation than the Judeo-Christian Western story. It's a beautiful chronology of the spiritual and enlightenment traditions that have really blossomed, grown up, emerged, or come to and all been put into the Garden of India. What a beautiful explanation that was. And some of those traditions also rebel against other traditions, right? So mm-hmm. caste has a long lineage there, uh, social discrimination, evil. Just bringing the, the great thing about the Western Enlightenment tradition is, even though it puts man at the center of creation, it still says all men are equal. And the radical message of, say, Jesus, who has the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? That's a total anti-racist, anti-caste message, which resonates within India. So, you know, it doesn't matter where these traditions begin, but they become our traditions. And rather than just identifying with one of them and saying, I'm a Buddhist or I'm a Marxist, I think allowing these traditions to work creatively in harmony with one another and in contradiction to one another and looking to see what we can do to take that next step beyond. I think that is like an extraordinary privilege of, again, being Indian, which I feel very, very strongly about. Hmm. You know, that's very interesting to listen to. And I can just imagine the whole thing visually as you're describing it. Can you give me a more specific incident from your childhood or your adolescence about your sense of culture and self from all of this rich tradition that you were born into? So I grew up with a lot of Hinduism and a lot of nationalism, right? So it was very natural for me to become a Hindu nationalist. So in high school, uh, I was recruited by RSS, which is a Hindu nationalist, Hindu supremacist organization. It appeals to patriotism. It was appeals to Hindu nationalism, Hindu pride. 
And, you know, I did feel very strongly about it. I worked with them and for them because in some sense, right, that sense of justice, the sense of injustice that people tap into with these narratives, I think they can be extraordinarily influential to somebody young. And in some respects, I see that nationalism as being positive, especially when it comes to caste. So when I worked with the RSS, for example, they worked together across caste lines, they would eat together, they would not maintain caste. But at the same time, when it came to outside the group, when it came to Muslims, when it came to Sikhs during the riots, I mean, they were extraordinarily brutal to the outsider. Mm -hmm. And it took me a while, but then I realized, just felt that there was a huge dissociation between what Hinduism was preaching and what nationalism said, right? That sense of universality that you get from the heart of all great religions is about saying, hey, the whole world is a family. You have to reach out. It's one human race. And, you know, really you're trying to find out who you are. Yeah. Whereas the nationalist answer is, hey, say it with pride that you are a Hindu. Yeah. Because all of Hinduism is trying to say is, and, and Buddhism and Jainism is saying is you're not Hindu. You are soul or you are a being or you're, you know, you're the universe or whatever is the... Is so the, how did you the, reconcile that? Because that would be, when you recognized it, it would have been a source of cognitive dissonance for sure. So what did you do? How did you emerge differently? In some sense, I realized what I could not take was the hatred for other groups that came out of the nationalism. Because the other Indian tradition, which is very important, is Gandhian style of nationalism, which is very influential on me, which is, hey, we have to work across all the religions, basically trying to say we need to build a pluralistic society where everybody searches for the truth, finds it in a different way. You know, Hinduism is essentially a polytheism where you completely recognize there are going to be many gods and your god may not be the same as my god. And you may find the way that is best for you. It may not be the way that is best for me. And each of us is on a different journey and we need to find our own journeys. Nationalism is the exact opposite, which is telling you, no, 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 no. (laughs) How did you get through that? Because you're not there anymore. You're not in a nationalist group. So what happened? You know, I was very blessed to have extraordinarily good friends and activists, especially extraordinarily good women friends, especially after I came to Madison, Wisconsin, as I started working with groups. Feminism, I think, was a very important influence for me because feminism really dismantles nationalism. Yes. Mm -hmm. The core of nationalism being the male body and really male anxiety about masculinity. And I can only say it's, again, maybe another extraordinary privilege or extraordinary source of good fortune to have friends and be in a place like Madison, Wisconsin, which was a very progressive community, and you start working in it. There was everything from, you know, act up gay rights movements and nuclear disarmament and anti-war and feminist movements and socialist movements. And so it was a time of extraordinary intellectual ferment. And for me, that helped me to keep moving on. Right. Mm-hmm. So it was that not so time much- of university. Did that happen when you immigrated to the United States or did that happen beforehand? Even beforehand, I mm-hmm. was starting to move away from right wing nationalism simply because, you know, there were orchestrated riots there were killings. Everybody has a breaking point. I mean, there are some people who come and say, oh, you know, I was with, I stuck it with Trump till the January 6th insurrection, and then I couldn't take it anymore. And everybody else is like, what? What <laughs> took you so long? What took exactly. you so long? I could tell from the first time he opened his mouth. <laughs> exactly. But everybody has to come to their conclusion at the time of their enlightenment. And that is part of it. Well, it's interesting what you said is 
that piece about the violence was what made you say, you know what, this is not it. I can't stick with something that's going to be showing violence. And you started to move away from that. And then you were in what you described as a, an intellectual ferment, right? So that would be the time when people are in their young adult years, when they're so hungry to understand concepts and to learn from other people and other ideas. And that's such an important time. I often wonder if when people haven't developed beyond the narrow confines of what they knew when they were a child, perhaps they didn't have any windows of opportunity at that critical time of being a young adult. I think you're right in a certain way, right? I think even politically, you see this huge difference between the college educated and the not college educated. And I think that has less to do with some kind of bookish learning that you did in college, as opposed to actually the intellectual ferment of being removed from your home environment into this environment where you're thrown together with people who come from so many different places. And now suddenly you find that all the things you learned are inadequate and you have to learn more things and you have to engage with people differently. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and then you have to evolve uh, into it, right? And, and that's kind of extraordinary that many of the practices and ideologies and ideas that were born out of the 70s and 80s, the anti-racist movements, the feminist movements, the socialist movements, the small groups. Many of those are coming back now to the modern workplace, which is so, quote unquote, woke now. And even when I look past the last 20 years and look at how my workplace and working in tech and corporate America has changed, I am just amazed at how much more acceptance there is of sexual diversity and LGBTQ and BLM and, you know, everything. It's It's just so amazing. It's not unexpected because they are both reacting to the same thing, which is, you know, in the 70s, everybody was sitting around saying, hey, how do we take these diverse bunch of people and make them work together towards a political cause? And now corporations are turning around and saying, oh, you know what? Our workforce is not all white male. So we need to do something about getting everybody together and making them go along. And guess what? Here are all these ideas from the feminists that we're going to take and implement in the workplace, (laughs) which is fantastic. Yeah. What we're learning to do is love and appreciate diversity of method and contribution while contributing towards unity of thought and action. Without building towards unity of thought, you don't discover the diversity. And if you aren't looking for the diversity, diversity and encouraging diverse expression, you don't reach unity of thought either. They're kind of like a tension between the two of them. You have to have them together. So we're still wrestling with that because there's so much polarization. There's so much extremism. And we have to come to that realization that we truly are one which is what you spoke about earlier. And that is going to not be an easy road because we have to be able to hold that space for each other and truly listen. And we aren't doing that yet, I don't think. It may look that way in some places, but it isn't there. I work with a lot of people from in a lot of different workplaces and in so many situations, it sounds good what's coming out of their mouths, but when you scratch the surface, the hatred, the misogyny, the inequity, is it just jumps out and bites you. That's so true, Marie. Uh, So here is the positive and negative thing, right? I work in uh, pre-sales and sales. So I go on a lot of long car trips with older white men who are 
are salespeople who've been in this country for a long time and they have certain ways of thinking. And, you know, it harkens back. I think about my father and say, okay, well, here's what he says about Dalit. So here's what he thinks about women. And here's how he grew up and here's what he does. And I know that inside he's a good guy, but here's what he's saying because here's what he thinks. And to bring that same empathy to that situation helps. But what I can see is it doesn't matter whether you are doing this willingly or not. Things are changing because exactly. a modern workplace cannot function. You cannot recruit that transgender person who's an amazing coder who's coming out of MIT to your organization unless you're willing to make it clear that transphobia will not be tolerated. You know, God bless the young people because they're coming in with a lot less baggage than previous generations did. And so I'm loving the fact that it's all changing. And it's so ironic to me that this crisis of capitalism requires tools from the feminist and socialist movement to <laughs> Well, it's natural because you take a slice of anything and say this is the whole, it never works. But at the same time, although many people say rah, rah, we're all in this together, we're still having the issue with mental illness, angst, Mm -hmm. not feeling that people belong. There's more and more self-harming behaviors. The use of drugs and alcohol is going up. People still need to feel that they have purpose, that they're loved. You know, all of those kinds of things are still not there yet. I think we need to still dig deeper, but we're at least acknowledging and naming and starting to move in the right direction. Absolutely. And layered on top of that, right, is the whole climate anxiety, the whole Mm -hmm. anxiety around COVID, the whole anxiety last year, it was the anxiety around the political season. So some of the activism we are doing, especially with the youth, right? So as part of Revile Long Island, last year, we launched what we called the summer program to fight hunger and climate change. How that came about was a bunch of organizations, some of the organizations were trying to help food pantries. Food insecurity was at a high because a lot of workers, especially immigrant workers, were laid off from construction work. We couldn't at the same time get together and do things indoors. So when a bunch of our organizations got together, we'd said, hey, why don't we work with young people in the community, get them to dedicate a bunch of time towards just sustainability, climate change, hunger. So what we started out with was about 12 young people whom we paid scholarships to because we wanted to make sure that young people who still had to work during summer could be part of it. They committed to four hours of time a week for 16 weeks. They work growing food. They grow almost 4,000 pounds of food that were donated to a food pantry, all local and organic with a professional farmer who worked with them in small groups. They worked in the preserves, pulling out invasive plants, planting natives. They learned about composting. They walked in the woods and learned about birds and bird identification. And, And the goal here was when I talked to these young people, I could sense the anxiety. So, you know, when I was young, my sense of association with nature was always positive. It was always beautiful, green, oh, exciting. You know, it was the positive adjectives that would spring to mind. Whereas it feels with this generation of youth, think about, oh, what are we doing to the oceans? What is happening to all the microplastics in the ground? What is happening to the bees, the colony collapse disorder, warming, earthquakes? I mean, it's really the anxieties out there. And what came successfully in the program that was born last year and we are doing again this year, is the best solution for that kind of anxiety is putting your hands in the ground, seeing something positive. You know, you grow a milkweed, a butterfly will find it. Just do things. You grow food, you see it growing. You stand outside, you're like in the breeze, in nature. When you look at especially native plants, you understand that their relationship of coevolution, they just bring native insects to them and they're extraordinarily successful in sequestering carbon deep below 
uh, as perennial. So all these things start to make sense and you start to feel like you're doing something in your backyard, in your local community, in your nearby open space, rather than waiting for, I don't know, Greta to solve it or the Paris Accord or AOC or Green New Deal or one of those big, scary newspaper things. You are doing something physical. It's connected to the earth. It's putting your hands in the dirt. It's sweating. It's getting bit by insects. And it's community. It's like working with people and it's learning and it's learning about positive change. All that, I think, is extraordinarily successful in dealing with anxiety is what I would yeah, say. Yeah, because you're reconnecting with the purpose that I mentioned earlier. You're reconnecting mm-hmm. with the purpose of recognizing sort of the sacredness of the earth and respect for this beautiful planet that we live on. And you're experiencing it firsthand, which grows an increased sense of responsibility and love at the same time, really, for what's all around you. I was listening to a commentary on a documentary when I was driving, and it was about cultural burns, which I had never heard of before. And I was absolutely fascinated by this whole concept that all around the world, Indigenous populations engaged in specific systematic burns that would clear off pieces of the land that could be susceptible otherwise to huge devastation by large forest fires and to ensure that the eco-diversity that was there could continue to grow. And I had no idea that this was thousands of years old tradition and that it's all over the world and that now people are starting to look to the Indigenous people who still understand and know the principles of cultural burns to help rewild the land and to prevent devastating forest fires that happen because of monoculture. It was just fascinating. I'm sure you know lots about it, but this was a first experience for me. Absolutely. I mean, and I think there is two or three things that are so important to connect, right? And I think we try to do that. I won't say we do that because I myself am just, as we go through the journey, discovering the connections and understanding. I feel like if I summarize the work I do, it's like immigrant people and native plants, right? So Mm -hmm. you're as a (laughs) immigrant in a country, in a a landscape that I don't recognize, but I'm slowly starting to learn. But a big part of that landscape is the people who came before and whether it is the recent immigrants who brought like their hydrangeas and roses and lawns with them or the Matanacock and the Native Americans who lived and populated Long Island and who understood the rich, diverse who really learned the technologies of, you know, what plant heals ulcers and what other plant is good to build canoes with and what is good for firewood. And they populated the land with things that they desired and had such a huge impact on the land while at the same time preserving much of that native flora and fauna which has been decimated by the suburbanization of Long Island. Mm-hmm, right? And mm-hmm. that suburbanization is just spreading across the world. So when I go back to India now, and that's my project, because the first modern suburb after World War II was built in Levittown in Long Island, where you know young developers took charge of a few hundred acre parcel and then started building these cookie cutter houses with lawns. And guess what model of uh, building and development is spreading all the way from China to India to Bangalore to Kinshasa to anywhere you said is the suburb. Everybody looks at America and say, yes, I'd love to have a house with a swimming pool in the backyard and a lawn in the front and this and that and a driveway. And, you know, so that's the model that is getting built no matter where you go. And that has horrific consequences for the planet. So just being able to reimagine how our front yard looks, get rid of that lawn if it is not native to you. 
or replant it with native grasses. You know, make sure that you're not bringing in nitrogen fertilizers, driving big vehicles with require carbon fuel in them, then cutting the whole thing and then dumping it out in trash somewhere and then bringing nitrogen fertilizer and starting the process all over again, pumping water from your local aquifers. I mean, this model of simple things like how we maintain our landscapes are not sustainable. Mm-hmm. Right? I wanted to ask you about, I mean, you've already talked about groups you were born into and how those influenced you. And you talked about some childhood incidents and groups that you chose to belong to. You also talked about the Hindu nationalist movement and a few other things that you did. But is there something that you have chosen from a culture that you have adopted into your own practices or your own way of working with the world? I just do so many things that I feel are quote unquote, cross-cultural that it's hard to pick one, but let me just throw out a few and (laughs) you tell me, right? So one obvious thing in relation to landscaping and how I do things around my house is going back all the way to my childhood, right? And the first story I told you about not killing ants, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is really, you know, just respecting, not thinking of them as living things, but thinking of them as living beings, really shifting your consciousness and just understanding that every blade of grass out there in your yard, every plant there is alive. It is a being. Mm -hmm. Uh, It exists in connection with other beings. Do not treat them like furniture. So your lawn is not a carpet. Your hedge is not a curtain. Your ornamental plant is not a painting. These are all beings and they all have ancestry. They came from different places. So a tulip bulb that you planted in your front yard that looks gorgeous to you is really like a plant Barbie that is commodified it originated in Turkey. It was cultivated en masse by the Dutch and then shipped across the planet. And you bought it for $2 and put it in your backyard. And it looks like a piece of plastic to the bee that comes and wants nectar, right? So just understanding yeah. the relationships yeah. between things in your but yard. But wait, so you already knew that. You already grew into that. I did not know anything about native plants. So mm-hmm. the fact is the native plant movement is something that is relatively- I new. see. Okay. It's about the native plant <laughs> movement. Okay. Yeah. It is absolutely. So when you start thinking about it, not just in terms of plant, but thinking about it in terms of native plants and what native plants mean for a bee or a bird, it is putting on glasses, which have the optics of a bird or a bee. I was inclined to treat the bird or the bee as a fellow being, but I had no clue what it meant to think Think like a bird or a bee till a whole bunch of uh, naturalists, especially in America, who started thinking about habitat loss and why are there no birds and why are there no bees? And then they worked their way back and they said, we are losing native plants. It's not like we're losing greenery, mm-hmm. we're losing native plants. Yeah, <laughs> Which so- is why I asked you, Murray, where are you from? Because I was very interested in your eco-region. Alberta, Canada has a bunch of native plants that are native to where you are and has nothing to do with the native plants in Long Island, right? And same thing with India. So we really need to know the native plants in our regions and plant more of them. Yeah, I think that's why people say, well, if you want to encourage bees and insects, then plant native wildflowers. But if you plant wildflowers that are not native to where you are, it's not going to have the same effect. I think what really struck me about what you said is the idea that the bee will reject the tulip that's been commodified. Exactly. And it's not native and it looks pretty to you, but it doesn't look like anything to a bee. Your lawn looks green to you, but it doesn't look anything to any bird out there. So Mm. it's kind of that sense is one thing. And to answer your question with another example is I worked with nonprofits and groups and they are great when it comes to how they harness volunteers. Mm -hmm. But I think the cultural practice that I've taken from my workplace as a technologist is really using some of the tools, right? Like some of the relationships 
relationship management tools like using Google Drive for organizing people. I think it's a lot more important for community groups to be thinking more in terms of implementing technology, tracking donors, tracking. and like so even for smaller groups, I think bringing some level of financial and organizational and technological discipline and insights into it, I think can be enormously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this group that I was just working with before we started talking today, they're a Pan-African immigrant support group that has an amazingly successful summer program. And they have done some gardening in the past, but this year, the parents who enrolled in the program were begging for more gardening and asking for gardens and wanting to know about how to plant plants that would grow here and that would make sense to grow here. And people were saying in the past, oh, well, we can't grow anything here because it's not like what we would have in our country. And now they're saying, well, teach us what would grow here so that we can start planting our own food. And people are so hungry for it. And I think this whole piece of native plants also is so important when my husband and I are going for walks, which we do frequently, and we go to different places near us and we try to find where are the invasive species. So my husband will go, okay, this flower over here, this is called the dog choke plant. This was brought in by t- such and such a group. And this wow, is why we have this. Awesome. Like, I'm so, so glad he is subconscious. Yeah. yeah, we're doing these kinds of things, trying to figure out well, which one doesn't look like it's native. You know, here we are on this walk and we're going, this one can't be native. And it's just made us really interested in finding out more about what are the plants that are native to the area. But I have this burning question for you, and I'm sure you can answer it. What do you think about bird feeders? <laughs> What's your take on, on bird both feeders? Sides of the religion. <laughs> friends <laughs> on both sides of that religion. You know, <laughs> what I felt was the most pragmatic advice given to me, which I like is people said like, hey, put out a bird feeder there. First, learn to recognize the birds that come there. Like, you know, use an app or use your friends or whatever. Recognize the birds that come there. Research them. Figure out if these you're really feeding native populations of birds that are you know, things that ornithologists or naturalists would want more of, or figure out if you're feeding birds that are actually invasive to your area and are taking over the nests of other birds. So really you can fine tune. So it's not one thing. You can always start with one thing, learn, and then get better at it and then get better at it and then get better at it. And then you may decide to abandon it or leave it. The best bird feeder you can have, and that's what I have in my backyard, is a wildflower meadow. Because guess what? If you plant those coneflower, I mean, whatever native plants that are the coneflowers and the the heliopsis and the uh, bee bombs, those are native to my area and the birds just love it. And and you get like tons of native birds and goldfinches and things like that coming and sitting. So they are the best bird feeder. They are free. They kind of grow themselves. So you could do that. You could. So the purpose is not perfection. In all of these things, the purpose is progress, which is, are you doing things a little better than you were doing it before? You don't need to compare yourself to anybody else. You don't need to feel guilted or anything like that. Just decide what you want and then just do yourself a little bit better next day. (laughs) That's perfect. That is not what I was expecting, but I just love the answer. And from what you said about technology, I also agree because again, working with the same group, they're so talented with bringing people in from the community all around. And then those people attract people from other cultures. They've just been so successful more than any other group I've ever seen. And yet where they were stymied when we were trying to do the evaluation is they didn't know how to upload to Google Drive. And it sounds like a silly little thing, but it actually involved quite a lot of complex issues. For example, do they have enough bandwidth on their phones? And is this something that the organization should pay for? And it became quite a bit more of a technological ecosystem than what I originally thought it would be. So I guess everything is like an ecosystem and everything needs to be grown. And you move one step forward and go from there. So let me ask you a question about your temperament. You were born with a certain temperament and then you added on with personality as you grew 
I think you're very passionate for sure. Would you agree to that? Yeah, very passionate and temperamentally, I tend to get very angry very quickly. And uh, it's taken my wife many, many patient years to get me to mellow and, you know, not act in the the moment, uh, but reflect, not say things that I would regret later. (laughs) You're also very whole system oriented, right? Yes. Yeah. I can't do anything without knowing why and really liking the why. Uh-huh. So what have you added on to that that's become part of your personality in addition to what you were already born with or grew into socially because of the, your environment? I think being in sales, I really should think that being in front of customers has added a completely new dimension to it, right? So I don't mm. take things personally. I'm much more accepting. I used to be a lot more religious and doctrinaire about the isms mm-hmm. than I am now. And mm. I think a big part of that is working in a corporation, especially with customers. You know, if I bring that thinking back to my work in, say, Rewild, at the end of the day, I care that people put a milkweed in there backyard and a butterfly comes there. I tell them, look, a butterfly doesn't care whether you are a Republican yard or a Democratic yard or a socialist yard or a Bernie Sanders yard. It doesn't care. Just put a milkweed in there, a butterfly will come and you'll be happy. So really working with people more towards common goals and less getting hung up over issues of identity and how people express themselves. I think that was very much learned for me. And a big part of that goes to working in corporate sales because you realize it's not personal. Hey, you somebody wants to build a data center and you, they send you off to work in a team, then everybody has to pull together. They don't particularly care that the data center is late because our primary coder quit in a huff because of sexual harassment. I mean, those narratives don't matter. You really have to pull together and deliver products for your customers, be professional, You know, not take things personally you can't bring everything home and some, you know, stew about, oh my God, he said this to me. Can you worry about it? Being customer focused allows you to have a third authority. Absolutely. So, yeah. So that's higher than pettiness that happens between people when they get too close to their own selves. Exactly. You just realize it's not personal. Hey, I have an objective. You have an objective. Let's try to work together, get done. Mm-hmm. Right? And you don't try not to be transactional because as you go through life, you realize it's not about just making profit off somebody and walking away because I would like to ideally come back to this person and work with them. And as you were saying about your podcast, Marie, that is you like to work with your guests again in multiple contexts. It's the same thing, like relationships you cultivate really take a certain amount of effort. And if you can make those mutually productive, then you don't have that startup cost of having to acquire customers and keep having a a turntable of new people in your life all the time that you have to learn all over again. And you learn trust and trust breeds more confidence and it breeds more success. And it's it's kind of like a positive cycle. And then all those butterflies come to your garden as a result. Exactly. And and all the songbirds. That's all I care. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. Uh, What about a time, and I'm sure you've had many, but a time when your cultural understanding just hit you in the face that, whoa, this is me and the people that I am familiar with. This isn't everybody. It's like a shock to realize that you're in a new culture. I'm just remembering it when I was 19, I went to France and I had never experienced an upper class anything. Um, My husband's family are all aristocrats, highly placed, all well off, uh, living in really posh apartments. And one of the places where we stayed had maids and all the maids were immigrants from Portugal and they all wear these little lace aprons. And the mistress of the house would ring a bell when she wanted the maid to do something, even if the maid was right beside her. And all she had to do was turn around and look at her and say, would you mind getting me this? Instead, she'd ring the bell. And it was just such a shock to me. And I thought, okay, I guess what I thought was normal is not normal everywhere. 
And it just hit me. Marie, my <laughs> anecdote is exactly the opposite of yours. Uh-huh. Because I was amazed when I found white people doing manual labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had grown up with the sense that, oh, you know, it's like India is not just a caste-based society. It's a very color-conscious and race-based society as well. So, you know, typically people who have a, a light skin color would have servants. They are rich. They are this thing. And so you come to the United States and I find people, white people digging ditches. I'm like, whoa, wait, wait. <laughs> what happened here? <laughs> I didn't know white people work for a living. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? I had a friend from South Africa who said something similar many years ago when she came here. She said, every time I go down the street and I see white people working on a construction crew, I go, wow, that's just so different. That just never, I just never mentioned that. Exactly. Like, wait, where are the servants? And then there was a group of teens that came from Nairobi on a cultural exchange when my kids were in high school. And I said, so what stands out for you since you've been here that you're going to take back home with you? And one of the girls said, well, the men actually work here. <laughs> she, said, she said the men go to work and they come home and they're really tired because they've been working all day. But she said, in my country, what happens, she was from Kenya. She goes, in my country, what happens is the men maybe work one or two hours and then they sit around and shoot the breeze all day. And the women work until midnight and then they start again the next day at four in the morning. And she goes, but here the men work just as hard as the women do. I'm just so amazed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then the other one that I think you know just comes to mind, uh, which I which really surprised me, but that was a very good, pleasant surprise, was when I saw a lot of women in um, math and uh, computer science and engineering, especially in the early '90s. That was rare, very rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, in India, it was rarer still that women would go into STEM subjects and do really well. So to see, especially in uh, mathematics, which was very, very male dominated to see a lot of good women mathematicians. Again, that was like a process for me. So, you know, there's so many things. The great thing is many of those things have even changed in India. So it's much less of a surprise to find women in STEM, but um, hey, that was then. Mm-hmm. That's a great answer. So if somebody wants to work with you, what do they need to know about what's the best way to work with Raju? What kinds of things are really helpful for people to be able to get along with you? you know, know what you're committing to, but deliver on whatever you commit, right? Mm -hmm. So if you say, I'm going to do an hour of volunteer work, or I'm going to show up at nine o'clock, or I'm going to do this, or I tend to be a bit particular and uh, judgmenty (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) about people living up to small promises, Mm. right? So, you know, because I tend to work systems and spreadsheets and make assumptions and things like that. I guess I need to work on the compassion angle. (laughs) But it is good to know that you like people to deliver on the small things. And if I were to work with you, that would be so important for me to know. That means, you know, be on time. If you're using a spreadsheet for a meeting, be prepared, have it ready, like those kinds of amazing as podcast hosts go. You are amazing because you already had a website, which I could go sign up to sign a release. You sent me a reminder. You put it on my calendar. You were there on time. You sent me questions before. You're just so amazingly organized, Marie, that you like you you embody a lot of the cultural aspects that you talk about on your show. You I can see that you're incorporating that into your workplace, right? So that's whereas I've had podcast hosts who 
like a half an hour before I have not received a link. And then 15 minutes before they say, my internet is not working. I got to cancel. So, <laughs> Well, I can't say that has not ever happened to me. Uh, <laughs> no, but, no, it's, but, all, it's happened to us, but you understand what I'm saying. It's, mm-hmm. it's always a pleasure to work with somebody that's organized simply because, you know, you can fit right into the system and both of you can be mutually productive. Well, I certainly appreciate the kind compliment and we're almost at the end of the interview. So this is my chance to compliment you. Like you've been just such a pleasure to interview and you have so many interesting insights that I can't guess what you're going to say as an answer. It's really great. I love when that happens. (laughs) And I learned a whole lot of new things that I didn't know about before, like the whole idea of the tulip being rejected by bees and birds because it's been plastified and changed into something that looks good, but it doesn't have a full organic sense of self and purpose. Uh, So It's not the tulip's fault. It's just that they brought the tulip, but it's not its pollinators. Its pollinators are still sitting in Central Asia or Turkey or somewhere. Mm Mm-hmm. (laughs) So this is your chance, you know, to jump on your soapbox. I don't know, you might want to talk about Rewild or anything else, but what would you like to promote and let everybody know about? Just the simple things, right? Anything that you want to make the planet a better place because we have been having these crazy heat waves. I guess you guys have been having that too, right? Oh, yeah. So Mm -hmm. basically, look, everybody's becoming Chennai now, (laughs) which is Mm -hmm. the climate I grew up in. Mm -hmm hot and then humid and then rain. So um, here's the thing. Just look outside your window, find a way to work on your front yard, backyard. If you don't have a front or backyard, go to a community garden, a space, a golf course, a churchyard, wherever, and just start reimagining and relooking and rethinking nature because we don't have to like start reading the intergovernmental panels report and start with the carbon dioxide percentage and get you all anxious. Just start with plants in your backyard, learn to recognize things around you, look at them as beings and look at them as their interrelationships with each other, plant something native in your ecoregion, see how well it does. And you'll be delighted when you see that first bee that you did not know or bird that you're a beetle or whatever it is that you did not know that comes by. And then I've never known anybody that started doing things in the garden to stop with the first plant or the first dozen plant. The only thing I can warn you is that it's going to be addictive. Uh, You're going to have so much fun doing it that, you know, you're going to be then doing acres and, you know, whatever. So please have at it. That's the best solution. Like, so, you know, whether you're not getting along with uh, a spouse, uh, whether you don't like Trump, whether you love Trump, whether you, whatever, it doesn't matter what it is, what you're anxious about, just go out and do things in your garden. <laughs> mm, that's really beautiful. Do you have anything else to say? Any other closing comments? Uh, no. Uh, if anybody uh, wants to learn more about us, go to www.rewildlongisland.org. Of course, realize that we are specific to Long Island. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, the other, uh, and, and you can uh, reach out to us or uh, reach out to me uh, if you have any questions and I'll be happy to answer questions uh, to the best of my ability. Mm, wonderful. And we will put all of your contact information into the show notes so that people can find you and connect with you and ask you questions. And it's been an absolute joy to have you on the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast. And thank you so much for the gift of your time and your insights. Thanks so much, Marie. Really happy weekend. Raju Rajan is passionate about introducing people to the land, to native plants, and to the concept of rewilding. His idea is that if everyone starts with one small plant action, our relationship to the planet will heal. 
combined with this planet mission passion is a deep understanding of the significance and role of technology, an area in which he has developed significant expertise. I was fascinated by Raju's insights and cosmic worldview stemming from the rich heritage of India and his immigration experience to the USA. Something he told me after the podcast was so quotable, I had to share it with you too. He said, a weed is an opinion. It is simply a plant in the wrong place and time. A native plant is a definition. Now there is something for you to ponder. To get an image of Raju's work and feel the passion for yourself, go to his website, rewildlongisland.org slash summer program 2021 and see the high school students in action at his summer native plant program. Remember, if you like our podcast, go to lovethepodcast.com slash culture and leadership and leave a rating and comment. Share an episode with a friend and even better, go to our patreon.com slash culture and leadership connections page and become a member of our podcast listener family. Thank you for listening and may culture and leadership connections continue to guide and inspire your day. This podcast would not be possible without the expertise of our Culture and Leadership Connections production team. A big thank you and shout out to Mike Kurlander for audio production and editing. To Malvika Kathpal for the show notes. Bernadette Guadiz for online web and social media management and promotions. Celine Bayogo for design. And Kirsten Hoyer for website and branding. Thank you so much.